Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. I think Adam expected to die on the day that he fell into sin in the garden. I can imagine, I have a pretty vivid imagination. I can imagine how he must have trembled with fear when God called him and his wife Eve to account for their sin. After all, God had clearly warned them in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, saying this, You may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I think the hiding and the the blame shifting of Adam and Eve as God confronted them for their sin, I think it shows us something. I think it shows us how they must have been just gripped with terror at the prospect of their own demise. God had promised them death for what they did. We, we already know the outcome, right? But they didn't know what was going to happen. It's kind of that moment when you see the blue lights in the, in the rearview mirror, right? That heart-stopping moment as the, as the trooper is approaching the window. What's going to happen? And so I'll say it again. I think Adam fully expected to die that day. I think he expected to be struck down on the spot, but curiously, God did not choose to strike down Adam and Eve, even though he would have been justified in doing this. Instead, he pronounced a curse over them. We talked last week about what it means for God to curse something or someone. And we also talked about why it is so important to understand this, just for your understanding of your own life and your understanding of the world at large, your worldview. This affects everything. And then we even began to discuss how God has cursed us, and by that I mean in what way he has cursed us. What are the particulars? The curse can be read, we actually read it this morning in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. And in that passage, we see that God first curses the serpent, verses 14 and 15, and then he curses the woman, verse 16, and then finally the man himself, in verses 17 through 19. And so we talked last week about how God cursed the serpent, even though the serpent who is Satan remains a fearsome foe to us. He is cursed. Make no mistake, he is cursed. Our enemy is cursed. The one who tripped us up, deceived Eve, tempted Adam in the garden, he is cursed. He was the first one to be cursed. So we can take great hope from that, that Satan has been humbled to a lowly place. God says that, that the, the serpent or Satan himself would slither around on the ground and lick the dust all the days of his life. We talked about how that is really 
I think, meant to be an object lesson for us that Satan, our great foe, as mighty and fearsome as he seems to be to us, he will one day, as he's been licking the dust, one day he will bite the dust. We even saw in verse 15, one of the most exhilarating verses in all the Bible, what we call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel God says that he will one day raise up a seed or an offspring of the woman to defeat the serpent. And he didn't say that he would raise up seeds of the woman or offsprings of the woman, plural. He said a seed of the woman. One in particular offspring of Eve would someday come and even though he would be harmed by the serpent, the serpent would bruise his heel says that the seed of the woman would in turn bruise the serpent's head. Which one would you rather be bruised on, the heel or the head? Even though Satan would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head and defeat him. This is the first promise coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And it happens literally before the pronouncement of death is even spoken. Jesus is the promised offspring of the woman, the promised seed of the woman, who would one day come into the world and crush the head of the serpent, Satan, through his righteous life, his innocent death, his burial in a tomb, and his powerful resurrection over the curse itself, over death. Jesus' coming was promised before the curse of death is pronounced, and even though the prince of darkness is grim, we tremble, not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Jesus. Now that brings us to this morning, verse 16. Let's read that together. God turns his attention now to the woman. He says this, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. God applies the curse to the woman here by frustrating her two primary roles in life, that of mother and of wife. First, we have her role as mother, God says to her, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. You know, this word pain here is a word which means painful toil. And it's the same exact word that God's going to use as he's cursing the man in the next few verses as he toils over a cursed ground and is trying to eke out a living out of the ground in painful toil. It's the same word used for both the woman and the man. And God says that this painful toil and childbearing shall surely be multiplied. I hear that giving birth is painful. I don't know from experience, but I have witnessed it, okay? Giving birth ain't no joke. I asked my wife this week about this, this verse because I thought, you know, get a woman's perspective on this verse. It's kind of dangerous as a man to stand up and preach on a verse like this. Uh, and she reminded me of being in, when she was in labor with our firstborn son, 
And I still remember that the, the water, her water broke in the middle of the night. We uh, rushed to the hospital and the contractions started coming. And I still remember her looking over at me and saying, I don't know what women complain about. This isn't that bad. Right? But a half an hour later, she wanted it to stop. <laughs> it did get bad. And, and, you know, even with all of our, our modern medicine and medical advancements, pregnancy and birth is fraught with multiplied pain and even danger, isn't it? It's dangerous to be born into this world, isn't it? It's dangerous to give birth. We are born in great toil because of the curse. And this curse is felt even as our birth is punctuated with, with a sharp crescendo of pain. Is it, is, it any, uh, is, it, is it any coincidence that our life begins with a sharp note of pain? Do you think that this could be an object lesson from the God who made us? Yes. Life is now going to be difficult and hard and full of pain because of Adam's sin. It's part of the curse. And yet, even in this, God is merciful. Ask any parent here this morning. Was the pain of childbirth worth it? I don't see any heads bobbing up and down. But <laughs> I've never talked to a woman who would say, you know what, that was so bad that I wish my child hadn't been born. Right? So even in the curse, God is merciful. God is gracious. He still gives us the joy of of being a parent, of having children. And I, I would say that this joy of parenting is so much so that we go back for a second round, don't we? We have more children. And so even in this, God is merciful and gracious. We see his hand of, of love and, and, and his good gifts to us in this. So even though it's cursed, there's still joy. And I, I would say, however, that, that this curse on the the giving of birth and of motherhood is, does not end with the pain of childbirth. I think what is intended here is even a frustration of the parenting process, right? The pain in childbearing doesn't stop at birth. Mothering is far from smooth. It's not a blissful journey that, uh, the blissful journey that God had undoubtedly had in mind when he set up the family and when he commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Motherhood will always fall short of what it could have been as mothers try to raise little sinners with sin in their own hearts. And so we, we feel the curse and one of these most essential of our relationships. But secondly, God goes on from there and he, he also places a curse upon her role as a wife. God turns from the woman's role as a mother to her primary role as a wife you know, we saw in Genesis chapter 2 that God had created Adam first, and then he created Eve out of a rib of Adam. And we said, that, that was kind of bizarre, oh God. Why did you do it that way? Why, did you, why didn't you just create Eve out of the dust? And we concluded that God did that to graphically depict forever the mysterious one flesh union that would characterize the marriage relationship. Eve was literally bone of Adam's bones and flesh of his flesh. There's a, mis a mystery to marriage in which God brings two individuals together and makes them one flesh. And he depicted it, another object lesson for us, by taking literally a rib out of, Eve's, or out of Adam's side to create Eve. And not only was, was there this imagery there, but God also did this 
in order to give Adam just a, a loving, wonderful, beautiful, jaw-dropping gift. Eve was a gift from God to Adam. And she was a gift that was given after he had showed Adam that no other creature in all of creation would suffice for his helper. Remember he paraded all the animals in front of Adam and had him name the animals. And Adam, almost in despair, looked out and saw that there was no one like him. There was no one suitable to be his helper. And it was at that time that God created for Adam a, a helper in Eve. And so Adam was intended to be the servant leader and Eve was intended to be the gracious helper and it was to be harmonious and it was to be wonderful and it was to be blissful. And yet we see here in the curse that God fr frustrates this blissful union as part of the curse. God tells Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. What does that mean? Well, I think understanding this part of the verse, it hinges on this understanding of this word desire. What, is, what did God mean by saying, Eve, your desire is going to be for your husband? Well, this word desire can mean a number of different things depending upon the context in which it's used. But I think the best way to understand desire here is as a desire to dominate. This is the way that the exact same word is used. If you flip over in your Bible to Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7, you'll read this verse. It, it's pertaining to when God is warning Cain about his anger because Cain's offering wasn't accepted by the Lord, but his brother Abel's was. So Cain was burning with anger, and the Lord comes to him, and he says this. He says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Do you see the parallel there? How closely that verse matches Genesis 3.16? Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It's incredibly parallel. Sin desired to dominate Cain, but Cain was instructed to rule over it. And I think so too. The woman's desire here under the curse would be for or against her husband. She would desire to rebel against his leadership. And yet, as the generally stronger one, the husband would tend to rule over her. It's the, it's the introduction of a power struggle into what was intended to be a blissful, wonderful relationship. So even though I, this particular part of the curse is pronounced to the woman, it affects us all. It affects us all. Next, God turns to, to the man, Adam, in verses 17 through 19, and he pronounces a curse on Adam. And picking up where he left off with the woman, God now says that Adam is being cursed because he listened to the voice of his wife. You know, Adam was... There, we found out, as Eve took the forbidden fruit and she, as she ate of it, she then hands it to Adam, who was there, right? So he was there silently, passively watching her fall into sin. And God says, because you listened to the voice of your wife, that he was going to inflict this curse on Adam. Now, generally, men, it's a good thing to listen to the voice of your wife, isn't it? I'm not giving you the advice to not listen to your, your wife's voice, right? That's, 
uh, I have found it, that it is in, extremely crucial for me to listen to my wife, especially since she's a godly, spirit-filled, word-filled woman. However, for Adam, in his role as the spiritual leader of his home, to listen to his wife leading him into sin was wrong. Adam was given the command not to eat from the tree. He was intended to be the leader in the relationship, and instead he stood back and said, well, let's see what happens if Eve takes a bite of that forbidden fruit. That wasn't servant leadership. That wasn't love. That wasn't what God intended. And so we almost see an establishment of what happened in the fall. Eve sort of usurped her position, and Adam sort of passively stood by and did nothing. And now there's a power struggle that's been introduced. And so Adam, too, has been frustrated in his role as a husband. But it doesn't stop there. God goes on and frustrates Adam's role as the provider. As the provider. Instead of work being fulfilling and providing in abundance, God curses the ground so that it produces thorns and thistles. Work now becomes toilsome because of the curse. God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. If you want to see some thorns and thistles, just come to my backyard. Work has become toilsome and frustrating. However, as, as with the woman and mothering, this doesn't mean that all joy in work is gone. Just as all joy in parenting wasn't taken away, all joy in work wasn't taken away. You might say, man, I really enjoy my job. I enjoy my work. Well, God in his mercy, he didn't take away all joy in work. Neither is work itself inherently bad or evil. Neither does this mean that we shouldn't work. To the contrary, we should work. In, in, in the New Testament, Paul warns against those who are unwilling to work. Second, Second Thessalonians chapter 3. And I would even argue that some of our greatest joys in life are what we accomplish through the work of our hands and through the sweat of our brows. Furthermore, your work matters to God, even though we don't have time to unpack that idea, you need to know that your work matters to God. And so, even with these lingering joys that remain, however, we are all too familiar with the thorns and the thistles that God speaks of here. Right? We're all too familiar with the feeling of, of looking at our workday and saying, I'm going to accomplish this, and I'm going to accomplish that, and I'm going to go there, and this is going to be productive, and I'm going I'm to make this happen, only to find out at the end of the day that we were met with frustration and difficulty and opposition and thorns and thistles. Right? Work has been cursed in that way, and we are all too familiar with it. And by the way, I also see with these thorns and, and thistles that God is introducing all that is painful and difficult on the creation itself. Romans 8.20 says that the creation was subjected to futility. The creation itself. And so I believe with this curse on the ground, we got not only thorns and thistles, but also mosquitoes. Let me tell you, I was, as I was working on my sermon this week, 
there was a mosquito sent from the evil one, I think, that was just buzzing my head constantly. These sorts of things, mosquitoes, wasps, tornadoes, hurricanes, storms, earthquakes, drought, all these sorts of things came in with the curse. The curse included a curse on all creation. So not only is Adam here being cursed in in his role as a provider, but remember initially God had set Adam up in dominion over all of creation. He gave him all the plants, all the animals. Everything was to go out and be subdued and and conquered uh, in in the interest of expanding the glory of God to the the far reaches of, of the earth. And now we see that instead of the earth being willingly subdued and willingly ruled over, we see instead that the creation will be rebellious to Adam's rule. It's going to be not only difficult to subdue, but downright dangerous. It's part of the curse. And now, finally here, in verse 19, we come to sort of the, the boom Right? The, the big penalty that Adam was fearing so much. The penalty of physical death. Look at verse 19. God says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So just as surely as Adam had been made from dust... To dust he was now destined to return. And death looms over all of us now, doesn't it? It's sort of our great enemy. And who can escape it? Romans 5.12 tells us death came through Adam, and through Adam death spread to all men, meaning all people. Listen to what one commentator, Stephen Cole, had to say about this. He said, Our bodies will return to dust. Since the fall, death is the enemy of every person. We can spend our lives working towards certain goals and yet be struck down any day by the most trivial of accidents. I I love this part right here. He says this, Death is no respecter of persons. Young and old, rich and poor, all must face death. But as terrible an enemy as death is, even it has its side of blessing because it forces us to come to terms with God and eternity. Very few of us would do that if we didn't recognize our mortality. Death shouts at us that we desperately need to be right with God. Can't we be reminded even from the news of this weekend Several shootings. We had a shooting in a a mall down in El Paso, Texas yesterday. And then another another shooting overnight um, in Dayton, Ohio. I used to live right around Dayton. Can be heading out to go to a festival or go to the mall just to go shopping and it could be over like that. None of us is guaranteed tomorrow and the, the threat of that, the threat of death is a warning to us. The curse itself is intended to be a warning to us that something is not right. And 
and that we desperately need to be right with God. You know, we have one life to live and then we die and the scriptures tell us then comes judgment. And as I said, I think Adam fully expected to be struck down dead on the spot that day. And here it is, the the sentence is finally pronounced, death. God said it would be death, and it is death. But by God's grace, it is death eventually, right? By God's grace, the punishment was eventual physical death, not immediate physical death for Adam and Eve. God allowed for their life to continue for a time. And in that time that he allowed them to continue to live, there was a window of opportunity left for salvation to enter in. I was blown away this week by what what comes next in verse 20. All my years, I'd, I'd never really thought about this. Let's read it together. It says, This is after the curse has been pronounced, the very next thing that is written says this, the man called his his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Isn't this incredible? What is Adam's first action step in response to what God has said. I mean, he could have done a a number of different things. You know, God, you you just had that, that moment where you're standing before the authority and you're being held accountable and God pronounces this really stark curse over you that includes frustration of all your primary relationships and even eventual death. And Adam could have walked away from that and gone out and decided to name his wife anything, anything at all in response to that. But what did he name her? He names her Eve. You say, so what? Big deal. What what does that mean? It is a big deal. Look, Look what her name means. It says it even here in the text that he named her Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Eve, in the original Hebrew, it means life giver. In light of all that God has just pronounced over them, isn't it remarkable that Adam gives his wife a hopeful name. He names her life giver because she was to be the mother of all the living. Allow me to quote Stephen Cole again. He says this, after the morbid words of verse 19, you would expect something like this. Now Adam called his wife's name the grim reaper because she was to be the mother of all the dying. Right? There are examples of that kind of thing happening in scripture where someone is named Something terrible happens and a baby is born and the baby is, often, is named some name with a horrible meaning like God has forsaken us, right? But Adam didn't do that. He named his wife Eve, life giver, because she was to be the mother of all the living. Adam looked out, he, he had just received this terrible curse, but yet he looked out and he said, there's going to be life. There's still a window. I'm not dead. There is a hope of salvation. Yes, there was to be pain in childbearing. Yes, there was to be a power struggle in marriage. Yes, there was to be thorns and thistles and futility and danger. Yes, there was to be even death, but not today. What a relief that there was also to be life. There was still to be offspring. 
And one of these offspring in particular was promised to bring salvation. If you think I was reading into that too much, I don't think so. Adam caught it. He saw it. Praise God for moving in Adam's heart to give Adam faith to believe the promises that were embedded in the curse. Adam got it. He saw it. And he responded in the way he named his wife. Listen carefully, my friends. Salvation has always been and always will be by faith in the promises of God, not by works. Adam was on this side of the cross historically. He was on, on on the near side of it. But the cross was proclaimed to him as part of the curse. And when he saw the promise, he placed his faith in it, in the promises of God, and he was saved, I believe. We are on the far side of the cross, but salvation is the same, right? We now look back on the cross at what God did and promises to still do for us in the future by faith in God saves us. Not by works, lest any man should boast. I think it's just remarkable what God does in Adam's heart here. And I really think that these conclusions that I'm drawing are only strengthened here in verse 21. Read the very next verse. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. How do you get garments of skin? I'm speaking to a bunch of suburbanites. Don't say the store, right? You don't, get, you don't get leather clothes at the store initially back in this day. These garments made of skin could only have come from the sacrifice of some animals. Probably two animals, one for Adam and, and one for Eve. And how horrifying it must have been for Adam and Eve to glimpse the first death Right here, remember I've been making a big deal that Adam thought he was going to be struck down dead that day. And did he even know what death was? Did he even know what, how horrible it would be? I don't think so. But lo and behold, God is merciful. God gives him a window to continue to live. But instead, there, there was a death that day. But it was not theirs. And what a relief. It must have been horrifying to witness as, as you know, these, these animals must have been almost like pets to them. It's amazing how attached we can become to an animal, isn't it? I'll admit it. I, I've wept like a baby every time I've lost a dog. So almost like a, family of the, a, a member of the family. And my eyes are not dry at the end of Old Yeller. If you haven't seen Old Yeller, you need to go see Old Yeller. Adam and Eve must have been shocked, I think, to see a pair of animals that had been under their charge just a a day ago now being put to death horrifically right in their presence on their behalf. And, And surely they must have thought, that was supposed to be me. I mean, 
How could that thought not have gone through their minds as they're witnessing these animals being put to death in their presence? How could they not have thought, oh, this is what death is, and that should have been me? And yet now through their sacrificial death on Adam and Eve's behalf, Adam and Eve can now enjoy some proper covering from their shame. And I I think if Adam and Eve had the thought that those animals died in their place that day, they would be absolutely correct. Do you remember that Adam and Eve up to this point had been clothed with their homemade clothes made of fig leaves? Can you imagine how pitiful that must have looked? To have hastily taken some leaves off of a tree and tried to weave them together into a covering of clothing? How pitiful that must have looked to God as he found them. How, how naked they must have felt in God's presence. How inadequate that covering must have felt as they stood before the holy God and had to account for their sin. I think the, the pitiful, silly covering of fig leaves is another object lesson for us of how pitiful and silly all human efforts are to cover up our own sin, whether it be good works or otherwise. Listen to how Jim Boyce said it. He said this, God's judgment is that a man's good works are fig leaves. Let me say that again. God's judgment is that a man's good works are fig leaves. It's not that good works are without value from a human point of view. It's just that they are no good from God's point of view. And that is because they do not deal with the basic sin problem. Good works are a bit like Monopoly money, he says. It's good for the game of Monopoly, but it's no good in the real world. Can you imagine being a winner at Monopoly and you have this big, huge stash of cash and you think, man, I'm going to go to the fair tonight, right? And I'm going to ride all the rides. It's no good. It's no good. In the same way, although good works are sufficient to make ourselves acceptable before other men and women, they are not sufficient to gain an acceptable standing before God. But, says someone, I have worked hard at self-reformation, I used to be a drunkard and I shook the habit of drink and now have a good job and fig leaves, says God. But I read my Bible every day and I go to church on Sunday and I always try to say hello to the person sitting next to me in the pew and fig leaves, says God. But I give to the poor, fig leaves. I give blood, fig leaves. I, I... Fig leaves, says God. These are all fig leaves. None of them deals adequately with sin. God shows us here, right at the end of the curse, what is required to cover sin. The appropriate covering for sin is death. The appropriate payment for sin is death. But the appropriate covering for sin is the death of an innocent substitute. The shedding of innocent blood on our behalf, God will accept. And so as it turns out, there was a death on that day, but it was not Adam and Eve's. God provided a substitute for them and actually clothed them with its skins. 
My friends, there is a curse of impending death looming over us all. And as I said earlier, none of us knows how much time we have left. And when we die, we shall all appear before God. Are you going to appear before God wearing fig leaves? Something that you cobbled together to cover your sin and your shame? Or are you going to stand before God clothed in the person of Jesus Christ, our substitute? Jesus is the sinless substitute that is pictured here. He never, ever sinned even once so that when he died, he was able to die for our sins. And it's as if we then receive our clothing from him. We are clothed in, not, no longer in our sinful shameful fig leaves, but we are instead clothed, resplendent in the garments of Christ. He clothes us by faith in his righteousness so that when we stand before God, we stand in garments of righteousness. Won't you clothe yourself today with Christ? There is a promise from Scripture that you can put your faith in, and it says this, whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Oh, Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your mercy, God. We thank you for, Lord, allowing life to continue Lord, for giving us a window in which to repent and believe and be saved. Lord, thank you for graciously sending your own Son into the world to be that sacrifice, to be that covering that we need to atone for our sins and to be covered in our shame. Father, I pray for each person who's here this morning. Lord, I pray that you would minister in ways that I can't even imagine. Father, I pray that you would help us to make decisions that we'd be glad that we made for all eternity. Lord, when we stand before you one day, Lord, may we look back and see, Lord, that you were calling us. Like you called to Adam and Eve in the garden, Lord, you were calling us, Lord, to deal with our sin problem now. Lord, to receive your free gift of salvation now. And Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen your people, Lord, the people who already have received that salvation. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen them by faith. Lord, how sure is our foundation in Christ? How wonderful our sin has been dealt with. Lord, what confidence is ours clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Lord, may we have no other confidence. May we have no other hope. Lord, may we not fix our eyes on other people. But Lord, may we fix our eyes upon you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, I pray that you would bless this church mightily, that you would establish her in your love for us and in your word. 
and in your promises. Lord, fill us with faith. Fill us with your spirit and give us new life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.